turn. Let's turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of Jude. Studying the book of Jude on Sunday mornings, right next to the book of Revelation. And um, as we're turning there, the reminder that on Sunday nights we are making our way, as we do always, through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently studying in uh, the book of Luke. We'll also be acknowledging our graduating seniors tonight and uh, having uh, ice cream or an ice cream social afterwards. And so, um, listen, we're not above carnal means of trying to uh, get you to come out, but a little something for everyone. It's always a, a special time. We'll pick things up in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that every time we turn to this book, your Bible, that we need never turn to it alone. And for us as Christians to know that the author resides within us. And so we pray that for the work of your Holy Spirit and taking these verses off of the printed page and then inserting them, Lord, into our relationship with you, our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, and into the nitty-gritty and daily of our Christian lives as we live for you as a pilgrim in this strange world that we live in. And we pray for this miracle of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The theme or the point of uh, Jude's epistle, the exhortation that he makes through it, that is that each of us as Christians are to contend and indeed contend earnestly for the faith to contend for that Christianity, the truth of Christianity as it's revealed in the Bible, because the truth of Christianity as it's revealed in the Bible is under attack in every generation. No generation escapes that, including our uh, generation, that it must be earnestly contended for. This was not the letter that Jude wanted to write, nothing like the letter he wanted to write, and uh, he had something else in mind. And the Holy Spirit uh, brought this letter forth, even as we might find our way going through the book of Jude and say, I'd rather not study that book. Uh, but it's the book that we need, and we need as Christians in uh, every age of church history to know and to understand. As we've seen the faith that needs to be earnestly contended for uh, against among other things, is those who claim to be Christians and use the grace of God uh, for the, as an excuse for the practice of lewdness or sin. They reject the moral demands of Scripture, and they use the grace of God as a justification for their willful disobedience of the commands that are clear in the Word of God. And then there are those <clears throat> that... They reject, uh, as he has brought out, those who deny the necessity of the lordship of God the Father and the lordship of Jesus Christ in the Christian life. 
And that as they were teaching, that it's simply okay to become a, a Christian, to make Jesus your Savior, but there is really no need to take Him seriously beyond that. You're completely free to disregard His demand also to make Him both our Lord and our Master. And these were the two apostasies or heresies that were being advanced in which this letter was written to contend with head-on. But really what the letter equips us for is to deal with any apostasy or heresy, any attack upon Christianity as it's revealed in the Word of God in, in any age. Jude then continued uh, his letter with this masterful expose of these false Christians in verses 5 through 19, and he exposed not only the depravity of their outward actions, but also the darkness of their motivation, the condition of, uh, of their heart, their duplicity, their hypocrisy, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, secretive uh, nature, how crafty uh, they are. And he did that in order that we might recognize them for who they are, for our own spiritual safety, also for the spiritual safety of the body of Christ as a whole, but then also to realize how crafty and how formidable an opponent we have in them, in what God has called us to do and to be as Christians in this world. And so later in this epistle, next time, God willing, as we look at uh, verses 24 and 25, as he closes the epistle, Jude emphasizes our ultimate victory in this battle, in this contention that we're involved in. But right before he gets there, in verses 20 to 23, as we see it this morning, he instructs us on how we are to equip ourselves in order to stand against heresy and apostasy. And uh, whether it comes from the world uh, uh, outside of the body of Christ or whether it surfaces by those who claim to be Christians and, and are not. And so what we need to do in terms of equipping ourselves is given us in verse, verses 20 and 21 and then how we're to wage this battle with discernment uh, concerning those who have been seduced by this heresy or any heresy is given to us in verses 22 and 23. When he says, but you, beloved, to begin there in verse uh, 20, the beloved, of course, now he has moved from speaking about uh, these uh, false Christians and now uh, returned to speaking formally uh, to Christians, addressing uh, us. And why is that important to know? Um, when you, this, the, in, in that verse 20, the word you, the word beloved, and the word yourselves is, they're all in the plural rather than in the, the singular, in the original language. Again, why is that important to know? You notice that what follows now from verse 20 to the end uh, of the letter, and in fact it marks the entire letter, is not addressed solely to pastors or to leaders within a local church. But what he is doing is he is speaking this to every individual Christian, to every single individual uh, beloved, because no church in the world 
it, it can protect the Christians who attend there from exposure from these kind of people and the false doctrines that they advance. You might keep a local church largely free of this kind of influence and this kind uh, of person, uh, but perhaps more often than not, they advance their heresy individually, uh, personally, uh, not on the, uh, within the, the confines of a, a, a church sanctuary or even a church grounds. And as a result, each of us needs to learn how to spot and how to resist their efforts to do that in our own lives individually. He begins by telling us <clears throat> our personal defense begins with build yourself up in your most holy faith. And your most holy faith does not refer to our personal faith that we put in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, but it speaks of the doctrinal foundation of Christianity as Jesus taught it and as it's recorded in the Gospels, as the Holy Spirit brought it forth in the book of Acts and then through the epistles. Christianity as it is defined uh, in the Bible. And Jude instructs us that we are to build ourselves up in this most holy faith. Building is a construction term. We all recognize it uh, for that. And uh, uh, literally, as he says, build there, using the word, it means to build upon, to build a superstructure. In other words, Jude is saying that the Word of God is to be not only the foundation of our Christian lives, but that it is to be what uh, the test for all we proceed to build upon that foundation in, in our lives. God's Word is to have the, uh, to test the totality of our lives, not only what we believe, the foundation, but then the life that we live, the structure that we build, the life that we build upon uh, that foundation, both doctrine and in practice. The word build is uh, there as it's used as in the active present tense. And I, I hesitate to bring this kind of uh, grammar out because I, you end up with a bunch of glazed eyes. Uh, but I will always do it if it, if it illuminates the passage. So build there is in the active present tense. In other words, Jude is saying that spiritual growth, our thinking and living being conformed to Jesus' teaching and living is never to cease in our lives as Christians. Uh, it is always to be something that's occurring in our lives all the way up to the day that we graduate uh, into heaven. We should always be growing uh, more deeply into the truths of, of the Bible and of, uh, of the Christian uh, life as they're found in God's Word, building our lives even higher and more completely upon uh, that truth, because if Jesus is the standard in the Christian life, and He is, then there will always be a significant room for growth in all of our lives until the day that we one day uh, enter into the, the glory of heaven. And, and this uh, uh, being, building ourselves up 
in your most holy faith. It includes the reading of the Word of God, but it also includes the study of the Word of God. The bar is so low in our culture, and we need to be aware of it, related to uh, uh, a Christian's engagement with the Bible, uh, that the average church or the average pastor is uh, working overtime, so to speak, just to get the people to establish a consistent daily time of reading the the Word of God, just to get people to read the Word of God consistently within our lives. And so, because the bar is so low, we can begin to think that that is the single greatest and sole thing that we can do with the the Word of God. I read it, I read it regularly. But there's also an element related to the Word of God that's necessary in the light of what Jude is talking about here, the necessity of studying the the Word of God, not merely uh, reading it, but then really digging down uh, deep into it and into its truth to learn about what it might have to say about a specific area in the Christian life. Because even with all of the sermons and and teaching that is found online or in attending uh, any particular church, it could be months or years before uh, the pastor in that church or even in the smaller groups within the church come upon the subject that may be very pressing for you presently in your life. And you don't have time to wait. So the necessity of knowing how to study it for myself. In other words, here I find myself in a a, a tremendous pocket of spiritual warfare. I'm a relatively new Christian, or at least this dynamic in the Christian life is relatively new to me. What in the world is this? What do I need to do to stand in the midst of this? And then I turn to the Bible and I learn what it says about spiritual warfare or about spiritual gifts or some uh, area uh, within my life that has come to the forefront uh, that is either uh, an asset or a liability, a sin in my life that I need to find out. What does the Bible say about anger and how to conquer anger or uh, about slothfulness or fear or lying or healthy communication? And searching out the Bible in this way, or searching out the Bible related to some kind of doctrine that is being advanced to us, some friend, some relative, somebody says, just like what's happening in this church, somebody who claims to be a Christian, and they've got this novel idea about Christianity or what it says, and we listen to that, and then we search the Bible to see whether these things are so or not. Now you have people knocking on your door on a regular basis, and whether it's a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness, or even if you just talk with people, talk with family members at a a reunion of some kind, or just talk with people on a bus or wherever you might be, you'll discover people have uh, some wild ideas about spirituality, about what life really means, what happens after this life, and so forth. And so you hear these things, and then, then it's incumbent to then turn to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about that thing that I just heard? When I was a brand new Christian, I had the, headed up the evangelism team at the Calvary Chapel that I attended, 
and I mean a really, really young Christian, but I understood the gospel and I understood how to present it and all. But there wasn't a Thursday night that I went out and we went out that I wasn't stumped by something. Someone said some question that they asked that I had no idea what the answer to it was or their theory on things. And so I would come home and then spend the next couple of hours opening up the Bible. So what does it say so I can have an answer for them next time? Or what does it say about this thing that I've never heard uh, before? So the importance of studying uh, the Bible. I think that if reading and studying of the Bible ceases in a Christian's life or has never been a part of a Christian's life, uh, then uh, of course we're going to be much more vulnerable to being seduced by false doctrine uh, as a result of that. I remember years and years ago, so I don't know what the contemporary statistic was, but at that time, the statistic was that 80% of all converts into Mormonism came out of a Christian background, a Christian heritage. And that's an appalling statistic. And it means that somebody didn't get founded within the Word of God, didn't learn the necessity of studying the Word of God and testing what we're exposed to by that, uh, that Word. And a Christian who's not consistently referring uh, to the Word of God regarding what to say or what to do in various circumstances and in life, or they have no real hunger to know God or to know His will, which is best known through the study of the Word of God, or to study Jesus' um, teaching consistently, I would say that that Christian lacks an awe concerning the Christian life and doesn't possess a very needed sense of privilege related to the Christian life and the privilege of being, having God uh, have, uh, bringing it, it great effort on His part, bringing these 66 books that constitute this Bible uh, into human history, and the privilege of being able to know it, and the privilege of being able to read it and to study it, and that sense of, of reverence toward the Word of God and, and respect and a sense of privilege related to the Word of God is a very important defense against uh, error. Jude describes uh, this, uh, the, our faith as most holy here because, in, in essence, he's saying nothing in the world compares to it. Nothing secular, nothing religious, nothing in the world uh, compares to the faith and, and what we have in Christ Jesus, much less the, the pathetic effort by these false Christians who are trying to form and fashion and redefine Christianity to simply accommodate the lusts uh, of their flesh. Nothing compares to the Bible and to the Christianity that's described in the Bible in all of the world. It is utterly unique in its origin. That is God Himself. It is absolutely unique in its truth. It is unique in the quality of human being that it produces. A holy human being, a human being that's growing ever more like Christ Himself. 
Then he tells us, second, uh, praying in the Holy Spirit. And so Jude instructs us of the importance of praying in the Holy Spirit. Notice that Jude does not say simply to pray. I would accept that if he he did, of course. But, But that's not what he does here. He becomes very, very specific, and he calls us to something uh, beyond that, and he calls us to pray in the Holy Spirit. And that raises the question then, what does it mean exactly to pray in the Holy Spirit? And clearly there is to be a Holy Spirit aspect to our prayers, Uh, in in contrast to offering just mindless, memorized, uh, rote prayers up to God without any kind of spiritual engagement on our part related uh, to them. And so what is it it to pray uh, in the Holy Spirit? Well, it certainly would include praying in the spiritual gift of tongues as that uh, gift is spoken of in, in the New Testament. It would also include praying to God uh, with unspoken groanings in our spirit, as the Apostle Paul describes that in the church, in his letter to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. Let me just refresh your memory by reading it here. He said, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind, what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Well, this praying in the Holy Spirit would certainly also include praying under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Uh, praying, desiring his involvement in my prayers that are being uh, formed and being offered to God and directing our prayers. It would certainly involve us sitting down to pray and then anticipating the involvement of the Holy Spirit now in my offering of prayers uh, to God. When Jude writes uh, there the, the phrase praying in, it can mean Uh, by means of, with the help of, in the sphere of, and in connection to. And again, it's very important to notice here that Jude is not at all addressing the content of our prayers. That's not what he's talking about, not telling us what to pray. Uh, What he is talking about here is how we are to pray. And he says, we need to pray desiring and experiencing the Holy Spirit's active inspiration and guidance and participation in our prayers. And giving the Holy Spirit an opportunity to uh, engage in our lives as we are praying, even to answer our prayers while we're praying. For instance, as we would pray and ask God related to some uh, wisdom that we need, some direction that we need uh, related to something that we're facing uh, in our lives. And we begin to talk it over with God in prayer. And the Holy Spirit is engaged in it. 
And so we talk with God, and we say, God, um, I'm in the middle of this situation, and this offer's been put in front of me, and it would mean moving, but do you want me to move and move my family, or is this where you want me to go in the company, or... And now pressure is being put on me to make the decision by Tuesday, and I don't have your mind or an understanding of your mind. And we begin to just talk all of it over with God with the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And it's more than external processing. Uh, it's an engagement with the Holy Spirit. As I've gotten older, I've become much more of an external processor. I think it happens when you get older, and then you start telling the waitress everything about your life, and she just wanted to know, uh, do you want salsa or not? Uh, so there's that tendency, but I just bottle everything up. Nobody knew what I was thinking or anything like that. I go into a store now, and I stand there in the aisle, and they've got 87 brands of lima beans. And I've been sent on an errand, and I don't know which one of these brands I'm supposed to, to bring home. And I'll talk it over with myself right there in the aisle. I do, I do tend to make sure the aisle's clear uh, on that. But when we do that, we just take the situation that we're praying about, and we talk it over with God, and then the Holy Spirit directs our thoughts, He directs our conversation, with him, and then how often it occurs uh, that uh, as we're talking it over with him, he adds in some way, something comes to our mind related to it, and then we're talking with him about that, and then pretty soon we see the, the solution to the situation, we see his will absolutely clearly before our eyes. And we don't, and I can't tell you how it always happens. I just know that when the Holy Spirit is involved in this way, that this is a regular kind of thing that he, in in the way that He gives revelation related to to prayer. And the answer that you get when you've been talking it over, the Holy Spirit is engaged, you want Him engaged in this, uh, you know, asking Him to lead you and guide you as you're processing this in prayer with, with God the Father and all, and, and, uh, and then boom, there it crystallizes. And now you see it like you've never seen it before. But more than that, you see it in the words of James chapter 3, verse 17. The answer is so supernaturally pure and peaceable and gentle and willing to yield and full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy that you know it didn't come from you. You know it came from God. And you have your, an- you have your answer. And again, I don't know how he uh, does this always, but he does it. And when we lack wisdom, He will make His wisdom known to us in response to prayer. But it's not just related to wisdom in in our lives. There's a a, a beautiful example of this in a a very, very old uh, copy of the the Daily Bread of how all of this works. And, And it reads as follows. There's a legend about a rabbi who welcomed a very weary travel into his home for a night of rest. After learning that his guest was almost a hundred years old, the rabbi asked about his religious beliefs. The man replied, I'm an atheist. Infuriated, the rabbi ordered the man out, 
saying, I cannot keep an atheist in my house. And without a word, the elderly man hobbled out into the darkness. The rabbi returned inside and was reading the scriptures when he heard a voice say, son, why did you throw that old man out? Because he's an atheist and I cannot endure him overnight. And the voice replied, I've endured him for almost a hundred years. And the rabbi rushed out. He brought the old man back in and treated him with kindness. And it's this kind of supernatural dimension to, uh, to prayer that Jude is talking about. Sufficient to say that there is to be a Holy Spirit uh, dimension to our uh, prayer lives. In the same way, in addition to the protection that the Word of God offers to us from being seduced into air uh, in an age that is filled with air, so the, whole, the, the, the Scriptures do that, but the Holy Spirit also uh, does that. The Holy Spirit is a teacher, uh, the Apostle John tells us, who lives w- within us, and He will put a check in our spirit. He'll put an une- uneasiness in us uh, about something being wrong that somebody's telling us, uh, even though we can't tell uh, exactly what that is. And that's a presence of the Holy Spirit to keep us from error. Think about a brand new Christian. And all of us who've been Christians, uh, we've all been brand new Christians. We know what a brand new baby is. We know how vulnerable a brand new baby is in the physical realm. Uh, We also have an understanding of how vulnerable a brand new spiritual baby is in a very dangerous spiritual realm. And how in the world did we make it from that infancy to some semblance of maturity in our, our life at this point. So, because when we're early as Christians, we know very little about the Bible. We don't have a working knowledge uh, of the Scriptures. We're learning it as fast as we can, but we can't confound the people that are on our doorsteps and what they're trying to tell us. And this is where the Holy Spirit steps in. And the Holy Spirit will not let uh, a lie like those lies to then settle in and become a deep part of us. They will, he, the Holy Spirit will trouble our spirit. He will, uh, he, uh, his response to the false doctrine, we will sense it within us that he's troubled by that. And uh, so we won't give it a place of fruitfulness within our lives. And it's another supernatural aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit in, in steering clear of, of this kind of thing uh, in, uh, in seduction spiritually in, in the Christian, uh, Christian life. First John chapter 2, verse 24, let me read to you what, what John says there in that regard. Therefore, let uh, that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But 
the anointing, speaking of the anointing the Holy Spirit brings into our lives, but the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. The third thing he tells us is that we're to keep ourselves in the love of God in verse 21. Now, he lists this handful of things that are important to mark our lives in order to stand in the midst of, uh, in the midst of error. Uh, error within the world, error within professing Christianity or Christendom. And, and I, I think that verses 20 to 23 are among the most overlooked kind of equipping for Christians uh, in, in this regard to be found in all of the Bible. A very, very famous section of the Bible is Ephesians chapter 6, which talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And there is the context of uh, wearing what we need to wear in order to stand in the midst of spiritual warfare. And there's some overlap here. But here you have something that is, is profoundly important in terms of what is to mark our lives in order for us to stand in the midst of the air of, of our age. And so each one of these things are important to characterize our lives. He tells us to keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude is not saying keep yourself saved. Uh, we can't, uh, we're not called to do that. Our salvation can't be any more sure than it, than it already uh, is. He's telling us to live in such a way that uh, it allows for the full expression of God's love toward us. And that's, that's what he's saying to us. And how do we do that? Uh, how do we live in such a way that the full expression of God's love and His blessings, uh, we experience them uh, in our lives? And the, the simple answer to that is by simply obeying God's Word, by obeying His commandments. Jesus taught using much the same language as Jude uses here. In John chapter 15, verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. I think that Pastor Chuck Smith, at least in my mind, had the ultimate word picture in terms of keeping ourselves in uh, the, the love of God when I heard him uh, describe this on the basis of an old, the lyric of an old hymn uh, that had a line within it that said, stand under the spout where the glory comes out. 
And uh, so, uh, always this section in Jude, is all, this phrase in Jude has always reminded me of that. I don't know what kind of a spout you think of. I always think of, I like Westerns, and I think about those uh, uh, pumps in the well and the thing on the side of the edge of town and, and just finding myself planted under some kind of a, uh, a, a great pump of water that is flowing over me. Stand uh, under the spout where the glory comes out. But a waterfall works great, and it's probably even a better uh, illustration. The shower less so, but a, a waterfall. But if you've ever stood under a waterfall, I mean, you stand under there and talking about the love of God coming, I mean, that's the full expression of that water. And obedience just puts me firmly fixed right under the love of God and all of the, the glory and blessings that He wants to pour out upon our lives. And if, you, if you're ever around a waterfall like that, you know that you don't have to move too many feet from that place to realize I'm having a, a much, th- this is a vastly inferior experience that I'm having uh, with, uh, with the water as a result of it. And so it is with disobedience. It moves us away from that kind of uh, of a fullness. And so obedience to God's commandments, it keeps us fixed right there where God wants to bless us and it keeps us in that place where uh, we can experience the full expression of His love. And of course, these false teachers were advocating a move from that place and saying uh, that the Christian life they were offering was uh, something uh, superior and, uh, and advocating disobedience to God's commands, but there's no blessing, Jude says, to be found there. And I think that any Christian that spends any length of time at all in a life of obeying the Word of God, experiencing the love of God that we experience as we do that, the blessings that He brings into our life, it is one of the greatest cures for ever being seduced by some other thing. Because you look at it and you say, the life that I have, as Jesus said, I've said these things so that you're, for your joy, uh, that my joy might mark your lives, where we would look and say, there is no way that what they're offering me on my doorstep or anywhere else is greater than what I am experiencing in the, this Christian life and in the fullness of God's love. Next, he tells us in verse 21 uh, that we're to be looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That is, we're to be living uh, with an expectation of the return of Jesus Christ for the rapture uh, of the church. And Jude describes the rapture of the church as an act of God's mercy, and for sure uh, it is going to be that. And at the time of the rapture of the church, a time in which we will be formally ushered into the glory of heaven, where we'll never have to contend with uh, lies or contend with what is false again. This active uh, hope of the rapture of the church is a very, very powerful influence for holy living and a very, very powerful influence against living what these false teachers were advocating, and that is a life of lewdness or a life of ignoring the lordship of of Jesus Christ 
uh, in, in our lives for the simple reason that when the rapture of the church occurs, we want to be found watching and waiting and uh, expectant in terms of His return and obedient at His return and not be caught in lewdness or in open disobedience to His Lordship within, uh, within our life. No one who claims to be a Christian and is living a life of lewdness and rebellion against God is ever looking eagerly to the rapture of the church. You and I may wake up in the morning and say, I hope it's today. They wake up in the morning and they say, I hope it's not today. And the desire, the longing for the rapture of the church, the longing of the bride of Christ, uh, this, uh, 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 this looking forward to the rapture is such a, a, a strong part of staying uninfluenced by uh, these uh, false doctrines and these, uh, these false Christianities and ideas about Christianities that are floating around. In terms of the rapture's purifying influence in our lives, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, John puts it this way, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He, that is Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him of Jesus' return purifies himself just as He, that is Jesus, is pure. And when a Christian remembers that heaven uh, awaits us on the other side of this life, there's no longing to use God's grace as a, an occasion for lewdness or to disregard uh, Jesus' Lordship. And there's something about an eternal perspective that is needed to give us a proper uh, temporal perspective in this life. And then finally, Jude closes this section in verses 22 and 23 with instruction on how to contend with or how to engage with those who have been uh, innocently uh, misled by the false doctrine of these false Christians. As we've gone through this, we realize Jude has been very, very strong in his denunciation of these false Christians. And as a result of it, he closes this section by calling on us to use discernment in our handling of those who have been innocently fooled by these false teachers because they're not all alike. We're to differentiate between the false uh, Christians, the false teachers, and those who have been influenced. And Jude puts them in three, uh, three categories of these kind of people uh, that we are to endeavor to rescue from uh, their, uh, their error here. And uh, these two verses, 22 and 23, are translated variously in all of the different translations of, uh, of the Bible because the ancient manuscripts of the book of Jude, for these two verses, there are variations in the text. And I'll go with the translation that's found in the New American Standard uh, Bible, uh, if you care. 
And uh, because it breaks it down to three groups, allow me to read that translation to you. And have mercy on some who are doubting, category one. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, category number two. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh, category number three. And so first, those who are uh, doubting, they've been confused by what they've heard these false teachers uh, teach them. And so they're wavering spiritually, they're doubting spiritually. And Jude says we're to respond to them with mercy. We are not to do what might be a temptation in our flesh to do, and that is to just shun them or to look at them and say, you know, consider them to be just gullible dupes. How in the world could anyone believe uh, such a thing? How come they don't know their uh, Bibles? Uh, much less to then just write them off. And so, oh, well, it was nice knowing you. There's plenty more people like where you came from, and uh, just uh, let them go. Some of them might be brand new Christians, and they don't know any better. And, and even uh, concerning Christians who have been saved for a long time, uh, not all of them are well taught. And so, instead, what needs to occur is that a well-taught Christian needs to come alongside them in mercy, uh, maybe invite them out for coffee or invite them over for coffee, and then to lovingly explain to them what the Bible really says about what has them uh, confused and answer their questions. And uh, there is such a thing as honest doubt. And there is such a thing as honest doubt Uh, within Christians who are trying to figure out and grow and learn in what the Bible uh, actually teaches. And you look at the culture that we live in, and and if we're not accepting of honest doubt, if we're going to treat people as spiritual inferiors because they have an honest doubt, then we're going to mishandle all kinds of… we'll mishandle them, period, but we will mishandle a restoring uh, of them. Uh, in in the, the, the country that we live in here, in the United States of America, there's so many attacks upon Christianity from without. It's portrayed in a way that it's not like at all. And then you have these attacks against Christianity that come in from on the part of those who claim to be Christians but are not. And so people that are new to Christianity or otherwise, they end up with doubts about what they believe. What does the Bible say? And, and we shouldn't be surprised when a Christian is made to doubt by some error that they've been exposed to. And this is the way to handle that situation. And then second, concerning those who've fallen under the spell of a false teacher or a false Christian to an even greater degree than, than that. And they maybe have begun now to live a life of actual lewdness. They're disregarding the lordship of Jesus Christ uh, in in their life. Uh, They've traveled down now, dangerously far down this path that leads to apostasy and and a practical denial uh, of the Christian faith. And so what Jude tells us to do with that group of people is to recognize the greater danger 
that they are in, in terms of what they have bought into, and, and that they actually need to be snatched out of the fire or out of the judgment uh, that is on the path of these false Christians that they are now uh, find themselves on. And so Jude tells us that uh, we are to inform them of the danger that they're in, uh, call on them uh, very bluntly, lovingly, but bluntly and with a necessary clarity to repent of their sin and to return to the Christianity uh, of the Bible. And there needs to be that urgent plea uh, with them. When he talks about the fire here, he could very well be trying to have come into our mind the situation when the angels in Genesis chapter 19 came into Sodom in order to deliver Lot and his family from the judgment that was going to come upon Sodom. And when you look through that passage, you see the language that the, the angel used then to try and warn them of the danger that they're in. They said to Lot, have, uh, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because of the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. They go on to say, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while Lot uh, lingered, they took the hands of the, the wife, the two daughters, and Lot, and they told them, Escape for your life. Don't look behind you or stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. That's a strong warning. And I, I don't know if there's one Christian in a thousand that would talk that way to another Christian today, even if they were driving over the edge of a cliff. And that's why he tells us to do it. We're private people in this culture. But how private can we be with Instagram and Facebook and the rest of it? But we get very private about religion. And we build fences in our yard, and this is mine, and I'm, this is mine, and that is yours, and all these categories, until this kind of warning, even for people in this danger, uh, is rare. And yet he calls us to do it. And then finally, even I I the final category, even as those who have uh, been fully captured by the false teachers. They've completely abandoned themselves into what the false teachers have, have, have said, a false understanding of Christianity. He said, even they are not to be abandoned in that, that condition. Because until the point of death in their lives, there's always room for repentance and redemption. But Jude does say a special care has to be exercised in engaging this group of people. They should only be approached by a Christian who is marked by two things. Number one, someone who possesses a fear or a caution concerning the error that this Christian has fallen into. A recognition that I don't want to be seduced by that same error myself. I don't want to be contaminated uh, by it. So this isn't an errand that Jude sends just anyone out to go and engage this kind 
uh, of a, a person. It's not someone who it should be proud or self-confident. They're going to go set them straight. This is the errand for someone who is humble and very sober-minded. You notice the second characteristic for the person that's going to engage them is that they should hate the garment polluted by the flesh. It needs to be a person who possesses a Holy Spirit hatred for the error that they've gone into and the sin that they are uh, practicing. So again, they uh, love the sinner, but they really do hate the sin. And it's possible to do, uh, to do that. When it says to, to hate here, it means to detest, to have a very strong aversion to and to, uh, to their sin and the reference to their, their garments here, it refers to uh, undergarments. And it doesn't refer to fresh undergarments. But as Jude puts it, un- undergarments that have been defiled by the flesh. That is, in a physical sense, soiled by excrement and vomit and body order, odor. And they are the person that approaches this kind of person spiritually, they are to be approached by those that hate their sin and are as repulsed by their sin as they would be repulsed if made to handle someone's physical undergarments stained with vomit and body sweat and excrement. In other words, it possesses, the air possesses no natural attraction to uh, the rescuing party at all. And so here Jude, in probably the most important section of the entire letter, as wonderful as the next two verses are, that he closes with in its own way. But how uh, to stand in the midst of an environment of apostasy and error uh, in professing Christianity that is spouting the same lies and more as were being spouted 2,000 years ago at the time of Jude when he wrote this letter. And in order to stand, it requires knowing the Word of God and making sure every portion of our life from the foundation to the steeple is connected to the Word of God and measured off of it. It will require a prayer life that is marked by the supernatural of the Holy Spirit. It will require keeping ourselves under the spout where the glory comes out by simply living a life of obedience to His Word, by longing for the Lord's return and the glory of heaven, and then maintaining a compassion for uh, a world of lost sinners and even those who sin against the greatest light of all. And this instruction is so priceless and so valuable because it is the very spiritual environment that you and I exist in. And if I understand the Scriptures correctly, it is not going to get better, but it is going to get worse. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, I pray for myself and I pray for work of your Spirit and I pray for all of my brothers and sisters that stand before you right now. And would you help us not to put these things in some 
category in our life of, of that this is something that pastors are supposed to say or preachers are supposed to say. But would you take us aside in the privacy of our own heart, Lord, and search us to see whether these things are actually characteristic of our lives. And then speak to us, Lord, in whatever degree that they may not mark our lives and of the danger that it puts us in spiritually as a result. And we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.